Greetings, Planet Earth. The following episode of The Derek Duvall Show contains an interview with a survivor of the September 11th attacks. We will be covering events from that day, some in great detail, and there may be some conversation or moments that you might find very upsetting. This interview is presented to show great respect to the subject matter, but it goes without saying that listener discretion is advised. Powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to friends, foes, and neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, because what you're about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for pop culture, commentary, and interviews featuring no drama and no controversy, guaranteed. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Productions bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Good evening, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the newest episode of The Derek Duvall Show. I am your host, Derek, and a huge shout-out to my own Rod Roddy, Mr. Jeff Brown, for that awesome introduction. We normally play around and have some fun on this show, but for the second time, we're going to be diving into some very dark territory. As I mentioned in the intro, we recorded last week for this taping, we are going to be talking about a very dark day in America's history, and that is September 11th, 2001. Now, most of us have our stories, Lord knows I have mine, of where we were when the towers fell. I was in the Navy off the coast of Southern California during the attack, and let's just say I remember that morning as if it was yesterday. On the show today, we have 9-11 survivor and author Mr. Eric Runningen. He will be telling his story and promoting his book, From the Inside Out, Harrowing Escapes from the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center. Once more, I want to remind my listeners that this interview may contain triggers that linger from the attack, so please be forewarned. We are going to be talking about some very sensitive details. So let's just go ahead and get episode 25 going. Please welcome to the show, direct from Memorek, New York, Mr. Eric Runningen. Eric, good afternoon. Welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. How's your day been so far? Derek, good afternoon. My day has been terrific. Thanks so much for asking. Great. So I'd like to start off my interviews with the same question I ask everybody else in these weird times that we're living in. Um, how has it been for you the last year or so navigating the COVID-19 world? The uh, COVID-19 world has been unlike uh, we've never seen before in this country, certainly. And because we were intentionally cut off from all of our families and friends, I made a specific interest to make sure I kept in contact with all of my family and all of my friends. For those that are nearby, we would we would drive and take our coffee or get a sandwich for lunch and, you know, like the police do when they want to have a little conference, they'll pull up nose to nose or window to window. Mm-hmm. And we roll down our window and have a, uh, have a nice visit for an hour or so. Mm-hmm. And those further away, we did Zooms or FaceTime. And those without that technology, we did phone calls. I've been on the phone an awful lot the last year plus. Very important to keep our friendships alive. I, I noticed um, New York City, you guys, I mean, what a, what a way to get hit. I mean, you guys, I mean, the, the hospitals were overrun. I, it was amazing seeing the whole city just completely almost shut down. I've never it seen did, like yes. That. Yes, yes, it did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, crazy times. Uh, we like to start at the beginning. So I'm going to ask, uh, where are you from and where did you go to school? I'm an Army brat. I was born in Madison, Wisconsin. Hometown is Baraboo, which is the hometown of the Ringling North Circus. 
which is which is always a fun little fact. Because my dad was in the army, grew up all over the United States, lived in China and Japan. My youngest sister was born in China. Home base was Round Hill, Virginia, in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains when we were back back in the States and headquarters was the Pentagon. Studied oboe so I could get a four-year scholarship to school and I, and I completed that. I was commissioned as a second lieutenant in 1966 and asked to go to Vietnam. It was at the height of Vietnam. And, you know, you're young, you're full of beans, you're invincible. Mm-hmm. But uh, they sent me to Germany instead and put me in charge of a NATO nuclear weapons site on the then Iron Curtain. School was Valley Forge Military Academy in Wayne, Pennsylvania. A wonderful four years. I bet that's, uh, see, that's funny. Actually, I had a friend of mine in the Navy. He was kind of in charge of uh, what he worked at in Washington. Uh, it was a nuclear missile base versus yes. where security upon security upon security. It rivals, uh, I believe someone said it, it rivals now a Las Vegas casino vault. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, the nuclear weapons are important. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you are the author of the book, From the Inside Out, Harrowing Escapes from the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center. Now, we're going to go ahead and get into the attacks in a few, but I have a few questions about life before September of 2001. Certainly. What are your earliest recollections of the Twin Towers? Well, I was around in the area, of course, when they were being built in the 70s. So I was in and out of Manhattan for whatever my job was at that time and, and was watching them being built. I think they opened somewhere in the late late 1970s, if I'm not mistaken. I remember hearing a thing that New Yorkers were not really keen on them when they first started. Well, I, they weren't. They weren't. They weren't architecturally attractive necessarily. They were just two two rectangular buildings next to each other, sticking a quarter of a mile up into the sky. But uh, I never gave it any thought whether they were attractive or unattractive. They were just. It was New York City. Mm-hmm. New York City is full of tall buildings. So, did you ever get a chance to go up to the observation deck on the? Oh, top tower? many times. Mm-hmm. Probably a hundred times, especially when I worked down there um, on a clear day. We would uh, take time off, and we knew the back entrance so we could get up to the deck for free, mm. and, and we did that frequently. It was a lovely view on a clear day. Just, how, just how far can of, you see? You could see, you probably, prob- I'm guessing around, around 20, 22 miles on a clear day. I, I, I checked it out on a map for Westchester County Airport, which I reference in the book, about how far you could see on a clear day if you, if you were looking very specifically in that direction. So it, it's it's not quite the same distance as you see out west with the mountains and the, but uh, it's 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 a way, long ways for New York City. So when did you get hired to work at World Trade Center, and what was it like to work in the building? I, I was hired as a consultant in October of 1997, six or seven. Oh, the buildings are great fun. We had about 50,000 people in just the two towers. And there were seven buildings to the World Trade Center complex, just tens of thousands of, of visitors and passengers because it was also the, uh, the subways would stop at the World Trade Center and, and disgorge passengers and employees. And it was just, it was if you like the city and if you like the speed and if you like being crushed by the crowd, that was the place to be. It was just always always people were moving all the time like i said now we're going to go ahead and just jump right into the sensitive sure. area of this okay so sure, of course. Okay? in your book 
you collect stories from people who, like you, escaped. You also take it a step forward, and you do a chronological approach, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. Mm. Uh, I was not expecting that when I read the book. 20 years on, do you still remember that morning before you headed into the towers? Oh, I do. And it's, it's very interesting when, even though it's 20 years, and depending on how you look at 20 years, it can be a long time or a short time. Whenever uh, I speak of 9-11, and I speak of it frequently, it's as if it happened last week. A lot of the detail is, is not as, as crisp as it was, but it's as if it happened just last week. That memory comes right to the fore, and it's in the present. So the only thing, major thing that was going on in New York City that morning was an election, if I remember correctly. They were, uh, they were the primaries were that morning, yes. Yeah. So then, of course, like I said, everybody knows, 846, a hijack. 767 driven into the north tower impacting floors 93 through 99 what do you remember the most from that particular instant well i was i was on the 71st floor of the north tower which is the tower that that american airlines plane flew into that first plane and i was preparing for a 9 a.m meeting with the executive director i was a consultant up to that point and at 9 a.m., I was going to become a Port Authority of New York and New Jersey employee with all the benefits that that entails. And it was a going to be a good day for me. The day was magnificently beautiful. I was going to become an employee. And uh, at, at uh, 8.46, that all changed in the, the tick of a second hand on your watch. Do you remember hearing the roar of the plane, or do you just remember just a huge thud? <laughs> yes, I was, I was sitting on the south side of, of the North Tower and had a magnificent view of New York Harbor and the tugboats and the boats flying up and down the Hudson River. And when that plane drove into the towers, it was a, there was an explosion, the likes of which it's just impossible to describe. I initially thought I was going to be slingshot right through the window and go down the 900 feet to the plaza level, but uh, that didn't happen. I kicked myself back from the convector unit out into, away from the window, and the roar was just so loud. It's, I just knew the tower was coming down above me. Mm -hmm. So I, I was still in my chair. I bent way down. It was just automatic, you know, that position that the body gets into to protect itself. Mm -hmm. And and as I'm almost on the horizontal in the chair, I say to myself, stand up and die like a man, because I knew that was the end. And I stood up, and as I stood up, I looked out the, the uh, south windows, and one of those fireballs came whooshing, swizzling down in the orange, red, yellows, and exploded right outside the windows. And I thought for sure we were goners again. And at the same time, everyone on the floor was yelling to evacuate and get out of the towers. And uh, and the floor evacuated very quickly because many of the people were there during the bombing of February 1993. Mm -hmm. Obviously, major chaos ensued. That's no question about that. I mean, I, but it was a few minutes after the plane hit that the news coverage began. Have you ever gone back and watched any of that television footage by any chance? <laughs> I have. It's it's mesmerizing, and it was it was especially mesmerizing uh, much later in the day when I when I did get out and walked way uptown to some friends that lived in in Manhattan, and they t kindly took me in and mm -hmm. they had their TV on, 
And of course, we, those of us on the inside had no idea what was happening and what had happened. But when I got up, when we got outside and I saw both towers were in flames, when I got north and watched the, uh, the, the, the TV, and then I'd watch the specials every year. It was just, it was just so captivating to me because it was unbelievable that, that I and, and we, my, many of my colleagues and friends that were in those towers, it was just unbelievable that we were in those towers with all that happened there. And we walked out individually in our discussions with each other. We thought we were the only ones that got out. But of course, 25,000 people got out of those towers that morning. 902 Flight 175 crashes into the South Tower, which pretty much was one of the most documented incidents in world history. Yes. What do you remember the most from that particular moment? Well, I was in the stairwell. In, 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 we had three stairwells uh, going down in, in each tower. So I think I was in the, the B stairwell. And someone had one of those little Sony radios on. And they said, another plane has hit the tower. And we, we didn't hear anything because it, it was the South Tower. Mm-hmm. And uh, my thought was that, that they were making making hay out of whatever was going on above us uh, in our tower. But that was all confirmed when I stepped outdoors onto Church Street and looked back and saw both both towers in flames. So at the moment it happened, I wasn't really aware of it. Do you remember the smell? Um, I've, I've heard a few people talk about the smell. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. something between burn, burnt wire or, or some other. Do you remember that smell? Yes, the smell to me was aviation gas, aviation in, gas. In, in the stairwells. There were pockets of that uh, of smoke, of aviation smoke, and there were more than two or three times when you get into one of those pockets, that I, and you couldn't inhale, you just couldn't breathe. It was unbreathable. And I thought, again, that we're just not going to make it through through this morning, that we're going to expire right here on the stairs in the middle of the tower. I've gone back and watched footage, especially recently, because I knew you were mm. going to be on the show. Mm. And it just baffles me that those planes didn't collapse the towers directly on impact. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know if that's a, a testament to the engineering or what, but I think it's just stunning, that, especially the second one, which I thought for sure was going to cut the thing in completely in half. Yes. But, yes. Uh, just, but the fact that they stood up as long as they did, I think was in, incredible. It was incredible, and, I, and even all of our engineers, and we had tons of engineers because the Port Authority is, is, was in charge not only of those of the World Trade Center and those towers, but but the uh, George Washington Bridge, the Lincoln Tunnel, Holland Tunnel, the three bridges to Staten Island, the, the path train subway system, um, and of course the three airports, three major airports in the New York City area, Port Authority ran. <clears throat> so all the engineers were very aware of all of the the construction design parameters and even they expressed that their concern because when that plane came into the tower it pushed it so far south and then it twisted and sprang north sprang south twisted north and then centered they said they could look out the window and see the sidewalk down at the base mm-hmm. which which is it's more than more than four feet out of out of center that it was designed to withhold so they did a pretty pretty good job constructing those towers so this is this is obviously going to be a sensitive question, so but I've got to ask, okay? Certainly. So after escaping the towers, survivors are witnesses to incredible carnage and tragedy. Um, mm-hmm. Some the poor uh, victims falling and some jumping from almost a thousand feet up. Yeah. Uh, I personally, I can't even fathom the choice between fire or or jumping out. What do you remember most 
seeing or, or, or hearing those who fell? When I, it took me not, not quite an hour to get down the stairs because the stairs were packed, as you can imagine, with people from, all, from, from the 92nd floor down. Uh, after about an hour, I stepped out of, out of the security line and went into the lobby and looked out the north windows to, to just see what was going on because I'd been in security at the World Trade Center previously, and my best friend was in charge of, was the director of security. And uh, when I, I almost pressed my nose against the window, and not and not a foot and a half in front of me, were were bodies twisted in their suits, and uh, and you look a little further out, there are other bodies to the left and the right were were bodies, and when they came down, it's it, the sound was like a shotgun being discharged. But after that hour climb down, my body was just exhausted. So. I, there was there was very little, if any, emotion in me at the time. And then I went and looked out the the east windows that overlooked the plaza and the and the big fountain. And again, there were bodies. And as I was standing there, a, a, a gentleman in a suit, horizontal, facing the windows, came came down. And for a split instant, we made eye contact. And for the next split instant the sound of the shotgun and then fluids dripping off the windows in front of me. And it was at that point I said, I've, I've got to get down to the, the basements of the South Tower, which is where our security command center was, so that I could help my friend who was in charge of, of evacuation of the World Trade Center. So I, I tried to get deeper into the towers and deeper into the South Tower at that time. So the heroes of September 11th are firemen, police officers who ran into the building. Yes, yes. Is there anything that stands out in your mind when you see and think about those first responders? Well, they were the heroes, but we also had many of the employees were heroes also. I describe as, as one of the characters in the book, there was an elevator rescue, a gentleman by the name of Jerry Denkels, who I'm guessing was in his, his 50s. He, was, he had gotten down to one of the floors and he heard someone yelling and he went and investigated, and they were caught in the elevator right at the floor. The elevator door wouldn't open. So he gathered a bunch of folks, and, uh, and, and they tried to get that door open. One of the younger employees came up and suggested that Jerry should leave and go home to his family. And Jerry asked this younger uh, employee, he said, well, you're a father of young children, aren't you? And the reply was, yes, he was. And Jerry said, well, all of my children are grown, so you go home to your family. So he stayed there until they got that door open. And, of course, he made it out, which was fortunate for, for him. But, again, with the fire, all, all the firemen, I know many of the firemen uh, from down there throughout the years, because I spent an awful lot of time down at the at the site for all those years post 9-11. And... Uh, they they were they they knew what they were getting into when they were climbing those stairs. It was hot. They had all of their bunker gear on. Uh, probably weighed 80 pounds with all of their oxygen equipment. And they were going up to to certain death. I, I know engineers that that saw the event from afar, and they said they knew there was no way that that building was was not going to come down because of what they saw and they knew about construction. I watched a documentary recently, um, mm. and it said that uh, they had live uh, 
uh, live audio feed of, from the firefighters. And they got up to the, I want to say the 78th floor of the South Tower. And actually okay. started putting and actually started putting out the fire. It was like they're the only ones to ever make it up that high. And then about mm -hmm. a minute later, the, the, the tower fell. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that mm -hmm. was, I was amazing. People were like, wow, they actually made it up there. And it was, it was pretty interesting. <laughs> it was interesting. And mm -hmm. we lost 343 firemen that day. So that's, that's quite a, quite a loss. Yeah. It, it seems, I mean, it seems unthinkable at the time, but you know, it, the South Tower, you do watch it. It twisted, it collapsed. Yes. Um, I mean, obviously countless footage of it, uh, news and, and, and amateur footage. What yes. do you remember the sound of that falling skyscraper? Oh, somewhere? again, the sound I was, because I, I, I could not get into the, the basement of the South Tower and I describe it rather graphically in, in, in my book about why I couldn't get down, but I was in the, uh, the lobby of the South Tower thinking I could get down. A, there was a second way of getting down, and the tower was totally, totally empty of people, and the lobby was dark like the north lobby that I'd just come through, and elevator doors were sprung out, and the signage was hanging, dangling, and I said, my God, what, what the heck is, has happened here? And then I went to see if there were any people. So I went to all three sections of the of the of the lobby, and not a soul. It was as if the city had been empty, evacuated for for decades. And as I was exiting the South Tower, I could hear a a low moaning, grinding, groaning somewhere deep in the bowels of of the tower. And uh, I was too exhausted to consider what that was all about. But I very quickly discovered what it was when I got out and up onto Church Street. And uh, my first instinct once I got up there, and there were, of course, thousands and thousands of people gawking out there on Church Street, which which was the uh, east perimeter of the World Trade Center. And I'm now going to go back into the plaza to, to provide what assistance I could to some of whom I saw laying on the, in the plaza. As I was about to go west, a little voice in my head said, walk east. And it was as if it were a silent command. I, my right foot came down. I did a military left flank. I got about seven or eight paces. And the South Tower began its collapse. It felt, Derek, it felt like an earthquake. And I thought for sure we were going to be collapsing into the subway system under, under the Church Street. And uh, I turned and looked and watched as the tower came down. My first thought was, the tower is going to come down on us and, and kill us all. And in the same instant, I said, it doesn't matter if it kills us. There's no place to run if it does. And it took about maybe 10 seconds. And the sound was just like a chunk, 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 10 floors at a time. It came down. And that's sound certain thunder today will sound like that and i'm transported instantly back to the base of that tower and of course there's thousands and thousands of people sightseeing gawking at the flames instantly panicked and now you've got a, a real problem on your hand you got thousands of people panicking and uh, i knew it was not uh, advised to be caught in a panicking crowd of people so i matched my pace to their speed and worked my way to the edge and tucked myself behind the, 
desk loading dock column of the Millennium Hotel and watch the uh, the people fly by, shrapnel go by from the collapse. And uh, it was interesting. There were high-heeled shoes and loafers were flying through the air. People were running out of their shoes wow. and stepping on, on the shrapnel. And there were splotches, splotches of blood all over the pavement. Um, it was a it was an it was an exhausting day. I but remember I remember seeing a, a video. Uh, there was the person who was taking amateur footage of the South Tower, mm. and they were close to it, and they were starting to freak out about you know they could hear it moving, they could hear it groaning, and, stuff like <laughs> yes. that. and they yeah. were like, no, 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 we, we're get, we're getting out of here, and what have you, and you know, yes, I, yeah, I, well, I, that one comment, so, and you brought that up a second ago. That sounds, yeah, that, that lines up. So <laughs> it it was memorable and loud. Mm. Yes, yes. Um, oh, the uh, just that ex- that whole experience was just just unbelievable. And then and then after the crowds passed, I I was I was stepping out to go back to the towers to to assist in whatever way I could. And uh, I looked up, and that 800 foot high pyroclastic cloud of of dust and concrete, pulverized sheetrock and and metal and whatnot was barreling down on us. And uh, I said, oh, my God, I'm so exhausted. I don't think I can survive another one of these. And uh, I turned around. I refused to run because you can get that panicky feeling. You can't think correctly. And uh, but I can walk pretty fast. All the doors for all the establishments were locked. Everybody had, had evacuated. And I went as fast as I could. And and just as the cloud tapped me on the shoulder, it was like a, a force five gale punched me in the back of the shoulders. I instantly inhaled. And all of the screaming instantly stopped. And it was nothing but pitch black darkness. You could not see. I put my hand to my nose. I could not see my hand. And uh, that little voice in my head said, walk east. And I knew I was still facing east, so I, I walked and I walked and I walked and I walked. And uh, I don't know how far I walked, but I walked until I, I had to breathe. And so you inhale. I guess it's like inhaling underwater. Mm-hmm. All this grit and, and grime and dust and everything else that was in there instantly clogged up my throat, my all the nasal passages, my mouth, my ears were packed, and my eyes were frozen open from all of this stuff. So I just walked until I couldn't walk any longer, and I stopped, and my knees were beginning to buckle. And I thought, well, this is this is the time to meet my maker on some unknown street in Lower Manhattan. And uh, as I'm thinking that, and as my knees are beginning to buckle, I through this 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 blackness, I saw a little fuzziness to my right. So it it was so it was so curious. I just I just gave gave myself everything I could. I willed myself to stand. And I took one step toward the little fuzziness. And it was a man opening the back door of a deli, walking into clear, clean air. I followed him in, and the staff was handing everyone uh, water and and drinks, cool drinks. Mm -hmm. And uh, I took two gulps, and it cleared everything out so I could breathe again. And I'm still here. (laughs) <laughs> those that you that's it's funny you say that because we're, we're about to talk about that the images you know people covered in gust and wandering around in shock uh, you know those are ingrained in people's memories 
those that you interviewed in your book, do they rem- what do they remember most of those moments and what was the common recollection? Is it, is it the same thing you just talked about, the, you know, being unable to breathe? Well, they were all, not everybody was in that, caught in that cloud. I, with the exception of one other person, uh, Todd Hank, who's, who has a fascinating story and he's in the book. At the, at the end, he was caught in the uh, cloud of the South Tower collapsing and uh, he had a similar experience. But he didn't. He didn't have to suffer through it quite as long, because he got up to the west side and walked up the west side highway. Um, but yeah, because it was so individual, um, where everyone was and what their, what their circumstances were, that uh, for six months, literally, Derek, for six months, we didn't do it. I don't know how we did any work. If we did any, all we could talk about was where we were and what we did. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, those that morning, and uh, but we all did work, of course. But so you, mostly you mentioned, the collapse. You mentioned, like I said, the North Tower coming down, and I, I read an article um, about two years ago now that said mm-hmm. that most most medical experts uh, are pretty confident that those who are trapped above the impact zone by the time the the tower collapsed, they pretty much either passed out or died from smoke inhalation. Oh. Yeah. Uh, does that? Do you think that brings people peace, or is it just? Does it make it more harder? Or I don't know. I've I've heard some of the audio of the phone calls, and those there were people standing on conference tables, trying to escape the heat from the floors mm-hmm. below. Yeah. And it was so hot. Even the conference tables were so hot they could not breathe, and they knew they were they knew they were going to to die in, in a fire or the heat, and. Uh, and, and my thoughts on all those people jumping was that there was there was no oxygen. It was a thousand degrees, and the closest place to escape was out that open window. Mm. And they weren't committing suicide. They were just trying to escape the heat and get a get a gulp of fresh air. There's no oxygen in a thousand degrees of heat, of course. Mm. It's like sticking your head in the your 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 grandmother's Thanksgiving un- oven. Yeah, <laughs> and breathing it, yeah. it doesn't work. Yeah. So after the collapse and so forth, what do you remember? The phone calls people were trying to get, just trying to get through, or were the with the whole network tied up? The networks were tied up. Oh my, people that did have cell phones and the cell phones, as you recall, twenty years ago weren't anything like what we have no. today. Yeah, absolutely not. Um, it was mostly pagers that people had, but uh, when I finally started walking, walking north away from the towers um, later that morning. I'd, I'd had on a, I'd put on a, a nice pinstripe suit and brand spanking new to start to break in that day, Florsheim leather shoes. And uh, coming down the stairwell, there was water coming through the walls and cascading down the stairs. So I stopped and rolled my trouser legs up above my knees. And I had a little, little black fabric briefcase and, uh, when I'm walking north, people are stopping and looking at me and taking photographs and coming over and offering me their cell phones to, would you like to call home? Mm-hmm. And and I, I tried to. I looked like the Pillsbury Doughboy <laughs> because uh, I was soaking wet from going through the plaza. There was water was pouring out of the, of the ceiling of the, of, the, of the mall level above underneath the plaza. And so when I got in that smoke, of course, it, everything clung to the fabric and uh 
so the cell phones, people were offering me their cell phones to call home. They were trying to help me out. But there was not a, not a lot of, of, uh, of, of even landline telephone service when I got to my friends. I did manage to get to uh, contact a friend of mine. I couldn't get a hold of my wife, but I asked them if they would get a hold of my wife and tell her that I was out and if they would call my mother to tell her that I was okay. Mm-hmm. And then then actually the phone systems didn't work even. I lived up in Westchester and the phones didn't work for probably easily a week. So we were all trying to to tabulate lists of who made it out and who did not make it out. But email was working, the internet was working. So we communicated by email and uh, we're contacting people and compiling our lists. One of the videos I've seen, and it's circulated widely on, I think, YouTube now, uh, was a video of a deli um, and the gentleman, he was a firefighter. He has, he had survived the collapse at the South Tower, mm. covered covered in dust and smoke. Yes. In, they give him water and they said, do you want to call someone? He goes, yeah, I need to call someone and tell him I'm alive. Yeah. And like, I mean, like, that's that's chilly. Even now, I'm getting goosebumps. <laughs> Just the way he said it. It's like, it's like, hey, I need to call a friend of mine and, you know, see, hey, I'm coming over for bingo tomorrow night. It's like, exactly. I need to someone, let them, I'm alive. That's right. Yeah, yeah. it's very true. Yeah. yeah. I ran into that in the deli that I ran into. I heard some woman was screaming. And I stopped and I looked and it was a woman on the telephone. She was just panicking. So I went over to her and very quietly put my arm around her shoulder and put my and my put my hand on her hand that had the receiver and I very quietly calmed her down and she finished her phone call and hung up. Other people now realize there's a phone in there and I wanted to call my friends up in Midtown to let them know that I was out. And I just very carefully put my glasses on, reached inside my pocket, pulled their number out very carefully dialed the number. I could only do it once. Everything was shaking. My body was just shaking from cramps. Uh, so exhausting was that morning. And again, it was the same thing. The first question was, um, are you, are you okay? And is, is Doug Karpiloff, who was the security director, do you know what his status was? And I said, I did not know his status. And, uh, that was the end of that phone call. But yes, yeah. You mentioned uh, people said they were taking pictures and, and offering you water. Do you have a picture of you? <laughs> have you have you ever seen I, one? I have I have not, and I've bought all of the books um, that were published. Mm-hmm. And I because I was interviewed by a, a uh, I don't know if it was Japanese or Chinese or Vietnamese. One of the one of the someone interviewed me with television. Mm-hmm. where they were taking television-type type films and did an interview with me. I, I called everyone I could f- figure out that might be, uh, might be those folks to find out if I could get copies of those photographs, but it, it just never surfaced. So the answer is no, I do not. I wanted to put one on the back of the book. It's so, so ludicrous because <laughs> when, I, when I got to my friends uptown, rang the doorbell and people are looking at me like I'm crazy because I'm dressed so funny and looking like the Pillsbury Doughboy. Um, Lee, the wife, opens the door and she looks at me from the head to the toe to the head and she broke out in hysterical laughter. 
and it was perfect. It was contagious, and I laughed, and it broke the tension, and uh, that was that was the end of that first phase of, of the 9/11 experience mm-hmm. for me. Which but, brings me to the next point. It's like, what are the next few days like? I mean, is it? I mean, obviously, it was wall-to-wall yeah. television coverage. I mean, there's, yeah. there's in, you know. But what what are the what are those next few days? What do you remember the most? Was it was it trying to figure I, out who, who who was still with us? Who was well, not, not not yet. The uh, because New York City instantly closed down. Nothing was was coming in or going. They closed all the bridges. But late late early afternoon late afternoon early evening they they started the uh, the commuter trains. So I walked up to Grand Central and got on the first train and got off in my my town of. Uh, Maranek got my car and, and I knew my wife was over at Doug Karpeloff's home with, with his wife and uh, I got there <laughs> she was about five foot five foot four uh, maybe 110 pounds and she came flying down the steps and threw herself at me and I thought oh my god I'll, I'll never survive this <laughs> it, was a, it was the nicest hug I've, I've had ever so I stayed at their home for a for maybe an hour and talked, and then she and I went to our home. It turned all the lights on, and uh, we talked to maybe two o'clock in the morning, and then we tried to go to bed. Twenty minutes later, she said, "You want to get up and talk about it?" I said, "Yes." Mm-hmm. Turn all the lights on. That's we did that for two or three nights in a row, and and during the day we started doing the uh, compiling our lists, but it was so ingrained, so ingrained in our head, so ingrained in my head that experience it was just it was etched and that was the only thing we knew what how to talk about it was the darndest thing so that is my next question is mm. you know you know you see like so i didn't get a chance to have that experience because of what i did during 9 11 but you you hear you know the patriotism the flags everywhere you know yes. the, the candlelight vigils yes on the concerts and stuff like that yeah what what do you what do you remember most of, of all that just that entire collective uh moment as the nation yes what what sticks in my mind are all the photographs and notes that were on all of the fences and all the bulletin boards oh. everywhere there there's a church um the name escapes me. Uh, across the, um, church, uh, across Church Avenue, uh, Church Street, there's a church with a fence around it. That fence did not have one square inch of space that wasn't taken up by photographs, love notes, thousands of flowers, um, uh, looking for looking for the their loved ones that hadn't returned home, and it wasn't. It was every place. It was Grand Central Station. It was Penn Station. It was it was in my it was in all of the little local local communities, train stations and bus stations and fences. Firemen were standing on corners making collections so that they could they could help pay for whatever needed paying for. Gosh, the the the, the heart of the nation just went out, and people from all over America, from from Washington State to all the states, hopped into their trucks, threw a shovel in the back of their pickup, and they drove to New York. We had so many people, Derek, trying to get in to that World Trade Center site to help that, that they had to start turning people away. And it was, it was really heartbreaking to turn people away, but 16 acres with uh, uh, an 80-foot pile of all that debris with where they were still looking for nearly 3,000 people 
that didn't make it out. And a lot of those all, fires were still burning, if I remember correctly. They too. burned. They burned for months and months and months. Right. Yes, they did. Yes. Oh did gosh. You, did I, you still smell the smell from months and months and months? Is that? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Mm. You could. And uh, my my aunt had an apartment up on 12th Street, and probably eight months later, my wife and I went and had dinner with her, and uh, she says that smell. She couldn't get rid of the smell. It would. It, they would float north and through their windows, and she smelled it all the time, mm. that aroma. Mm. Um, so when the dust is settled, 2,977 people never made it out of the building. Um, that number uh, could have been incredibly, incredibly higher if uh, the if events had not gone the way that they sure. had gone. Um, sure. What, what, what do you... What do you remember? I mean, I, they took them, you know, several years to clean up the wreckage of World Trade Center. Mm. And then, of course, they made the memorial. I mean, have you been to the memorial? Um, oh, yes. Yes. Uh, what memories does that invoke when you see it? Um, well, I've I spent all those years post 9-11. Interestingly enough, um, I missed becoming an employee by 14 minutes. <laughs> 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 and because... In September, was, it was the end of my fifth year as a consultant. Corporations that hire consultants only keep them a maximum of five years. But uh, my new position was going to take me into the inspector general's purview. So he took me under his, his wing with one of the other fellows and said, I don't care about the five-year thing. You're staying with me. So I was working out of the inspector general's office for a year or so. And then we set up the Office of Emergency Management, and I was transferred into that. And I really had nothing to do for three years. <laughs> it's amazing to me that they, they kept me, kept paying me, but they were paying everybody else, and everybody that was doing the paying had gone through the same experience. So there was a lot of, of, of empathy and understanding. But every day, uh, a colleague of mine, Vic Guanera, who's also in the book, went down to the World Train Center site. And once it was cleaned out, um, and you know, I've lost, I've lost your question. I think oh, I've rambled. Just, no, you're fine. It's just basically, you know, have you been to the memorial? And it's oh, so, there we know, go. Yeah. Yes. What memories? What memories do you? Of feel? course. So, so for years, I was I was down there talking to tourists from all over the world, just answering their questions. And then if they asked me if I was was there, I would I would tell them my story, and uh, very therapeutic. And then as the uh, as the memorial. And museum were, were coming under construction because of my access privileges. I could w go down and below and watch watch all of the progress that was being made. And they've done a fabulous job. I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of memorializing the dead, but uh, what they did with that World Trade Center museum and memorial, Derek, is just they've done a wonderful job with it. It's quiet. It's peaceful. It's serene. Mm -hmm. uh, People are, it's almost like entering a cathedral. People are very respective and quiet. And I've taken many, many people on tours of both the memorial and the museum. And uh, the woman that, that, the curator of the museum, Jan, uh, did such a fabulous job in, in, in uh, setting that museum up. They've done a fabulous job with that museum. It's funny you say that is because like I, said, I haven't had a chance. I haven't had the privilege to make it there yet. It is on the list because I, I want to take my wife to New York City. She's never been before. And I've been there many times. Yeah. 9-11 especially. 
Yeah. But the, for me is where I live in this country, we have the Oklahoma City Bombing Memorial, which is about an hour down the road from where I live. Ah. And when you, you mentioned it's very peaceful, it's very serene, is they have a reflection pond. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's obviously it's not as in grand a scale as the World Trade Center Memorial, but the, the bombing museum and you can actually still see the outprint, like this, the foundation of the, the Murrah building is still there. Mm, yeah. And uh, it it, it kind of evokes those kind of feelings. I remember when it happened. And, uh, yes, and, yes, and of course. Yes, yes. Well, I've I've given many tours, and I'm I I signed up as a docent, took the training for uh, for down there, and so I've had that had that privilege. But uh, when you and your wife come to New York, let me know. I'll give you a personal what I called inside the fence tour. Ah, see for everybody that I gave tours to long before anything was was built down there. It just sat sat fallow for years. And they say, and they say, doing what I do doesn't have perks. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's awesome. Thank you, thank you. Well, we meet interesting people doing what you do. <laughs> so I have a question for you. Um, have you been to Freedom Tower? Have you been up it or? I have not been in the Freedom Tower. Um, let me correct that. I've not been in it since. It's been completed and open. I was in it while it was under construction. I I was because of, of what I did at the World Trade Center. Um, I was frequently called to give special tours down there, and we had SEAL teams come down. We had special forces come down, and I would set it all up so that we could get specialized tours to the very top of that of that tower. So I was in it while it was under construction, but I have not been in it since it, it was completed and I've not been to the observation deck and I understand they've done a very nice job mm -hmm. with that. I, I can't imagine being an actual survivor and actually going back up the top of that. I don't know if that would just, I don't know if it, I just don't know if that could do that. That's, that's, yeah. That's well, many of the employees that were caught in that tower that morning refused to work in any building that had an elevator that where they needed to access an elevator to get to their desk. So, so a number of people retired or quit or transferred to another department because the Port Authority has 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 lots of offices at airports and tunnels and bridges and uh, other office buildings. So, so, what inspired you to write the book, and how long did it take? Well, that's an interesting question. It was it was September twelfth. My wife and I again sitting in our living room with all the lights blazing talking about 9-11 the day before and as I'm talking as I'm talking the, the thought was like it was it was as if it were dropped into my head the thought was three words write a book well I was curious because I'm not a writer but I didn't forget it and after about six months I or whatever the time span was I purchased a recorder um, decided which people I wanted to get permission to interview, got their permission, and wrote out the interview questions and kept the timeline. Uh, because I, I, I didn't know what I was going to do with the timeline, but I wanted to know what the timeline was. And uh, interviewed probably a dozen and a half people. And then uh, I was hoping to get it published by the first anniversary. And of course, that didn't work. And then and the, my wife, who had had been given a clean bill of health from her her colon cancer that came back again and uh so she was working her way through end of life 
and that took a lot of my time. So the three-quarters finished manuscripts was gathering dust on a shelf. And then as time passed, I, I sort of lost interest. And I was with my project manager. I, I, I invented a new security program for, for the whole region that uh, my project matter one day we were she and I were walking through the World Trade Center site and she said how by the way Eric how's your book coming and I said oh Terry I've I've put that on the shelf you know nobody's interested so much time has gone by who could be interested in in 9/11 and we were at the World Trade Center site and she stopped looked at me astonishingly and then with her hand did a 360 degree sweep and of course there were thousands and thousands of tourists from all over the world around the fence line just gawking at the hole in the ground. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I took one look at her, and it dawned on me that she had a point. And then for the fifth anniversary of 9-11, I was asked to be keynote speaker for a Patriot Day concert out in Lebanon Valley, Pennsylvania. And I went out there and I spoke before 1,500 people for 40 minutes with a with a full dress military band behind me, hmm. um, waiting to give their concert, and the standing ovation I got was so inspiring that I said, you know what, people are interested in 9/11, so, so I decided to finish it, and then coincidentally, call it chance, call it uh, fate, what you what you will, a classmate of mine from over 50 years ago that. He and I had lost track of each other. We weren't that close. I suddenly learned by chance that he was a uh, an executive with Barnes & Noble in New York City. And Barnes & Noble's headquarters was about two blocks from our temporary headquarters. So I went over there and knocked on his door. And one thing led to another. And he was very instrumental in uh, getting my book published, not through Barnes & Noble, but but uh, through an independent Fifth Avenue publisher. And uh, we've been friends ever since. Tell us about the photo that's on the cover, because apparently there's a a very interesting story about that. That photo, that is a fascinating photo. Um, Jim Usher was was running a a project in in the upgrade from the 93, 93 bombing. He was doing a security upgrade in the towers. Um, his offices were in the basement of the South Tower. And when that first plane came in on the North Tower, he didn't hear anything, but he felt a slight change of air pressure. And his experience from many years ago, from whatever it was, he said he knew something was amiss. So he evacuated his entire office, went around the basement, evacuated his told people to evacuate. Then he went up to the lobby of the South Tower and looked out, and the South Tower had not yet been hit. And he didn't look to the North Tower because he saw a couple of injured men standing outside um, in the plaza. So he went out into the plaza and took one of the men up to, up, got him up to safety. He said there was an ambulance up, up the street, so I took him there, and he was walking back for the second man, and he got into the plaza as he was approaching the base of the tower and the man, the Ameri- the United Airlines 175 flew into the South Tower. The, the air pressure was so great, it slammed him face down into the terrazzo uh, floor of the plaza. He knew 
he had a little digital camera in his jacket pocket. He reached in, he blindly pointed it up and snapped that photograph because, as he said, when they took that, that camera out of his dead hands, he wanted his two daughters to know how their father died that morning. Mm. Well, it was a couple of years before he and I ran into each other again, and he told me about that photograph. He, show, he had shown that to almost no one, but he showed it to me, and it, and it made an impression. So now, eight years later, or however many years it was, it's time to, to put a cover on the book. And I wake up in the middle of the night with the thought, call Jim Usher. So I hunted him down, emailed him, got a reply, called him up and told him what I was doing and that I would like his, his permission to use his photograph on the cover of the book. Mm-hmm. He immediately gave his approval for that. So he sent me the negatives, and I got it copyrighted for him so that if anyone wanted to buy it, he could get the revenues from that. Right. And that photograph, so that his two daughters could see how their father died that morning, well, the cover, you can see the, the, the flames and the smoke and the shrapnel coming down. And it hasn't hit the United States, our national colors yet. They're still flying. And... Uh, of course, that didn't last for more than a couple more seconds because that was torn to shreds. And he was impelled by minute fragments of, of the shattering glass. Mm-hmm. And none of those javelins of steel hit him. That was my next question. He actually came out of there with just minor punctures, basically. Yeah, well, he, he, was, he had hundreds of shreds of, of, of glass mm-hmm. in his body. So when he went up to the doctor's... Um, they spent hours with tweezers and, and magnifying glasses, however they did it, pulling all of those those, those uh, pieces of glass out of his body. Mm, and he, he saved that. He's got them in a little vase. Oh. So, <laughs> I mean, why not, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, how many times do you, does, a, does a tall building fall down on you? <laughs> well, some people collect teeth. Some people collect baseball cards. So there you go. <laughs> That's right, but it is. It, it, that's an emotional photograph. It really is. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking. I am looking at it right now. I mean, it's just. It, yes. It's, it's, it's a, definitely an incredible perspective that non people will probably have. In fact, this might be. There may be only maybe one or two photographs that exist from taken from the ground level. So. Yes. Yeah. This one is. This one's unique. Yeah. So I was. I was pleased to to have gotten his permission to use it. So what's the reception been like for the book? The book has been, it's in its fourth printing, so that speaks well for it. Now, the printings are not 100,000 copies, of course, it's a, but uh, it is in its fourth printing. Uh, I, I receive a check every single month for the audiobook. It's remarkable. People are buying that audiobook. Mm-hmm. It's also an e-book that I get a check for, and it's a, in, in a, it's a, and it's a soft cover also. Mm-hmm. So it's in all the mediums. Yeah, I and have the software right now in my hand. So. Uh, yes, and I, I'm still getting uh, in, invited. I just got an invitation uh, yesterday to speak to speak before uh, a, a Patriot Day event down in South Texas on the 11th, which I had to turn down. Uh, unfortunately, that had been great fun, and I've, I've I've not yet been asked officially to speak before a, an association in the Panhandle of Texas. Of, of Florida, and 
Oh, people call me all the time to come ask me to come and speak about 9-11. Mm-hmm. It's, so, it's remarkable uh, that there's still an interest. So my question is this. Obviously, you're a New Yorker uh, through and through. 9-11 happens. The towers are gone. For some people, I, I, I've talked to other New Yorkers over the years, and they all say that their point of navigation, their landmark, was the World Trade Center. They could tell you where they were in New York at any time just by looking at the, at the World Trade Center. Mm. Now that's gone. Did you have any problem just you know finding your way around? Or <laughs> no, no, because uh, I I'd commute from Westchester County, which is north of the city, and once you get to uh, Grand Central Terminal, you go down into the bowels of the of the station and you you catch a subway. So I rode the subways down to Lower Manhattan every day, and uh, when I got out, there I was. So I didn't have to use them as as a as my compass, as it were. But now they've still got the uh, the new the new tower is down there, so they've still got a landmark. So another question, I I, I asked a couple of questions online to people who said, to, you know, I told you you were coming on, and mm. they said, well, ask him this, ask him this, and I, and I feel <laughs> there's one question in particular that that I was talking to my wife about the other day. We were watching um, an episode of Friends, and the Twin Towers mm. are you know prominently featured in little you know little breakaway shots. You know, yeah. Hey, by the way, the show's in New York. <clears throat> Yes. And then the other night, we were, about a week ago, we were watching Ghostbusters, and the, you know, oh, yes. the one goes right by, yep. you know, the Twin Towers. Yes. When you see them on TV, what do, what do you remember most? You're like, wow, that's eerie, or is it just... Is no, it just... no, I don't, I don't feel eerie or not. I just feel privileged that I had the opportunity to work there, mm-hmm. and that I, that I actually survived, because the opportunities surviving that, that event that have given me to to talk with people, to try to help people. Oh my gosh, I've still got this colleagues that, well, still after 20 years, um, that re- they would not return to work. They they were so so adversely affected they couldn't couldn't bring themselves under control to uh, to return to work. But uh, I, I I made it a, a the decision almost from the beginning that I would not allow the events of 9-11 to run my life, mm-hmm. that I was going to maintain absolute control over over my emotions. That was going to be my next question. It's like, mm-hmm. what kind of lasting effect does that even have on you? I mean, is it yes. PTSD? I'm sure there's dreams. I mean, what, what does that look like? Yes. Um, when, in, the, in the beginning, people would ask me, well, do you have PTSD? And, you know, being a, being a, a man, and uh, I'd, I'd pulled myself up and said, no, I'm fine, which was totally fallacious. It took me a while to realize that, that I was was not fine. Um, from inhaling all of that that dust, it somehow affected my mentality. And for three years, for three years, Derek, this I am so pleased that I was not in a position to have to run a meeting. But I would go to meetings and I'd put a clipboard in my hand, a little trick I learned from the military, you may recall, put a clipboard in my hand and a pen, and I'd sit in the back and I would look the speaker in the eye and I'd make notes and I'd nod and I'd look like I was concentrating and, and appreciating what was being put forward. The whole thing was over. And if you looked at my notes, they weren't, they were not notes, they were scribbles. What was happening was, um, I would hear the first part of the sentence, 
And by the time the second half of the sentence was finished, I had no idea what the first part was. So I had no idea what people were talking about. Mm. I could not keep that a, a simple sentence in my head to comprehend what the discussion was. That went on for probably three years. Um, there was an event that, that, that tipped me over to get me going again, but the sounds, because I was now taking public transportation, I'm standing on the train platforms, and those trains zooming by the platform, the sounds were not were very similar to the sounds from that morning. And uh, I would have to back up, and I would turn my back to the train. I would grab the the rail of the of the of the back rail, and I would just very quietly inhale and exhale to try to keep myself as calm as possible. I did that every morning, and then I got to the point where I turned around and faced the train, gripping the rail from the rear, and then eventually I'd step forward, and then another step forward, and another step forward, and. Uh, Going under railroad trussles when a train was going over it was very difficult. And certain thunder, and I loved thunder from my earliest memories, but certain thunder was was actually frightening to me mm. for a number of years. But uh, I've worked at getting over that, and I I think I've I've succeeded for the most part. That's awesome to hear. I, I mm. that, that that's that's really good to hear because I. That's my next question is like, do you keep in contact with any other survivors? And if so, how are they doing? I, I have most, many of them have retired and, and gone to points, four points of the compass. But I do keep in contact with a couple of, of a number of the survivors, actually, and one of them that's in the, in the book, particularly. Um, and so we try to keep up with each other. But, uh, and, and I try to keep keep my visits with them upbeat because there's the tendency for some of these people to relive the that terrible downbeat emotion of the day and uh throughout all these years when I've been meet, when I've met with people and given tours of the World Trade Center and uh I I've, I've had the opportunity of speaking to people about death and what happens after death because death naturally was the only word on everybody's lips for for months and months and months. Mm -hmm. So we discussed what 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 happened after it happens after death and um, tried can to I, keep everyone. Can I ask a question? Can sure. I ask a quick question? Did they does survivor guilt play a role in this? Did anybody have that, or is it just? You know, I I'd, I'd, I'd heard of survivor's guilt, but I never gave it any thought until nine eleven, mm. and I had it. And I if I hadn't had it, I would have. I would have politely um, smiled and or whatever I would have done that was polite and totally disagreed with the concept of survivor's guilt. But I had it for six weeks because I tried so hard to get into the basements, and there are six basements in each of those towers, to get down to help Doug Karpeloff with, uh, I knew he needed help <laughs> getting people out of those towers down in the command center. And I just could not get down there. I kept getting pushed away, pushed away, pushed away. Um, some of that's in the book. And uh, I had survivor's guilt. It was not a pleasant feeling. I, I don't know how, how to describe it. But it was unpleasant. But I worked it. I worked it just trying to push it away and because I, I knew he didn't make it out. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, you asked about dreams. I had a number of 
of dreams of, of Doug Karpiloff, which was so fascinating. The uh, executives from time to time came to me and asked me, now, where was Doug when the towers came down? So I had a dream of Doug Karpiloff and I sitting at a kitchen table. He was in a suit and I was in a suit and we, we completed whatever business we had had to complete. And he got up to walk away and I said, Doug, I have one more question for you. And he stopped and turned around. And I said, where were you when the tower collapsed? He said, down in the OCC in the South Tower. I said, thank you. And of course, that's where he was. And uh, a second one of he and I dressed up in suits, giving over 50 people that perished that morning, friends of ours, because there were over four dozen that I knew, and he knew even more, <laughs> and he being one of them. The two of us were giving these people a tour through the towers. And as we passed certain points, one of the one of the people behind us that had perished that morning would point and say, that's where I was when the tower collapsed. And another one would point somewhere else when we passed it and said, I died over there when the tower came down. So those those are the kind of dreams I had from from 9-11. So, so, so my next question is, like I said, is, you know, we're now here, it's 2021. It's the 20th anniversary of the attack, and it's been in my experience in the last, especially the last year, um, working with the younger people, there's an entire generation coming of age now that were not alive when 9-11 happened, when the towers yes. fell. Yes. Um, yeah. I have spoken with them as they've gone through school, and a lot of them, you know, as they've, mm -hmm. as they've gotten older. Um, mm -hmm. They say the, the attack in, is never even, barely even talked. This is glazed over. In oh, history. I'm sure. True. Um, like me, I'm not gonna lie. Many like me were outraged by this, but um, they ask questions like, you know, again, like we were just talking about with with friends or Seinfeld, they show them in like breakaway shots, and they want to know, like, what is that? I've never seen that before, and you have to explain some, you know, that those with you know towers that happened a long time ago, and, yes. and they were, they're kind of just blown away. And then of course, you know, you've got YouTube at the push of a button, so then of course they get sucked into YouTube hell by looking, yes, yeah, watching all this footage and stuff. Like yeah, that. Just can't believe that that actually happened. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I, I've spoken to a number of, of, of grade school classes, fifth graders, fourth graders, uh, juniors in high school, seniors in high schools, who I've been asked to speak bef before them. And and it's been fortunate that the instructor has, has briefed them the day or two before and then shown visit videos. And they would ask they would ask interesting questions. The best questions I got were from the fifth graders down in in. Uh, in Louisiana when I was down there for, for an event. And, oh, they were so interested. They, they, all their hands were in the air asking questions about 9-11, my experience, getting caught, getting caught in that, that dust, that black, evil black cloud. Um, but you're right. And who's, who, who's taught about uh, September uh, 7th any longer mm -hmm. or any, any of the other events that are important in our, in our history? And it's understandable to me that people people aren't necessarily taught these things. Life life goes on, and yeah. and we have to carry on. You mentioned earlier that you've watched you know numerous specials. You know, I mean, obviously mm -hmm. there's probably a million documentaries now out there. Is there any stand out to you? No, that they don't. They they've all merged into one mm. into one blob. There, there's two that I watched um, in the last, oh, I'd say week and a half. I watched uh, 102 Minutes That Changed America. 
Okay, yes. It's brilliant. I thought that was absolutely mm. phenomenal. And the other one was The Falling Man, uh, which was done by Richard Drew, who was uh, the photographer who took that picture. And I, they were trying oh, to yeah. track down who that guy really was. Yes. And they that, did. Was a, that was a phenomenal, phenomenal documentary. Yes. And I think I saw that, that documentary, but I don't recall the details any longer. But, it uh, turns out he was the, um, the, the person who it was, was the brother of one of the members of the village people. <laughs> really? Uh, I, you can't make that up. <laughs> you cannot. Um, you can't make that up. But he was, the, he was the older brother of one of the, sorry, younger brother of one of the members of the village people. Interesting. Uh, he, was yeah. a, he was a cook who worked at the yeah. world. Yeah. And um, yeah, the family, like, yep, that's what he was wearing that morning. And there he is. So Yes, yes. Um, and I have so many stories of why people were or were not at their place of business that morning. Mm -hmm. And stories of people that, that uh, for what one reason or another, left their desk and were not at their desk when the flight drove right through their office. Oh, there's so many stories that are just they're just fascinating. Well, the flip side of that coin too is that there's there's two very famous people. Mark Wahlberg, the actor, was supposed to be on Flight Eleven. Um, oh yes. He canceled his he canceled his flight, and then uh, Seth MacFarlane, who is one of my favorite people in the whole world, um, he, <laughs> he missed he he missed his flight. And yes. It's, it's one of those things. It's like you 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 know I, that to me is I, I don't even know how you even put that into fathom that idea. You know. I know. Yeah, that's true. The funny little funniosities that, ch yeah. that change one's plans, and uh, you're either put in the place where there's disaster, or you're kept away from it. Yeah, they're just those stories are just absolutely fascinating. A caddy corner across the street was a neighbor who took the train in every morning, and on the morning of the 11th, he was standing on the platform, and the train was approaching, and he reaches, and he doesn't have his wallet. Well, his wallet is where he kept his ticket. And he decided, well, the conductor knows who I am. He'll let me. He'll let me. He'll let me ride in for free because he knows that I'm a regular. And then he said, you know, I'm going to go home and get the wallet. So he missed the train, took the next one in, which was 20 minutes later, and uh, he missed being up on Windows of the World. He was the manager of Windows on the World. Wow. So he did not. He was not trapped up there because he forgot. Forgot. He says, I never forget my ticket. Did you ever get to eat at Windows of the World? Just out of curiosity. Yes, yes. Was it really, oh, really? What kind of oh, food was it? Oh, it was a treat for for those of us that don't don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> fine dining it, is that kind of thing. Fine, fine dining. Oh my yeah. gosh! It it from from every aspect, and of course, um, we'd go up there for cocktails from time to time because it was just on a clear day, and when when night setting in. Oh, and I never thought New York had or new york city had sunsets well it does have sunsets you've got to get above the skyline mm -hmm. it has spectacular sunsets so i'd go up and a couple of friends and i would go up we either have cocktails or and and watch the sunsets mm. so yeah so, so i want to end this interview uh with my personal favorite question i, I always feel like these end on a high note if the entire planet was listening to what we've been talking about today, this particular broadcast, what would be the one thing that you would want to say to the entire people of Earth? I would encourage people to, four words, do what is right. And by, by that I mean do what is right 
where principles are concerned and where morals are, concer are concerned. Because if, if we did the right thing for ourselves and for our family and for our friends and community and for our nation, we would not be in the mess that this country and this world is in today. And I've got some wonderful stories that would illustrate the workings of that. But by people being clever and greedy and conniving and thinking they're going to get one up on their fellow man, it comes back to bite us one way or the other. And uh, so if, if I was in that position, Derek, I would encourage people to do what is right, and I'd be happy to help them figure it out. Eric, thank you ever so much for coming on the show. I know this might have been tough on you, and I think you're, you're a real trooper for doing it. <laughs> well, I'm so pleased you, you considered to have me on. I've, it's been a delightful experience for me. Thank you. With the 20th anniversary of the attack, I strongly advise everyone, seek out the book from the inside out, Harrowing Escapes from the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Eric, again, thank you ever so much. Trust me, this is, uh, this is one for the books for me. Appreciate it. Well, thank you, Derek. I appreciate your, your time and, and, and doing what you're doing. It's wonderful. Thank you. And that concludes episode 25. I got a very different view of 9-11, and I can't even imagine having been front row center for it. I want to thank Eric for being such a gracious guest, as I know he is very busy. There is a documentary on Hulu right now called 9-11, One Day in America. We've been watching, and I want you to know before you see it, it is a real gut punch. And there were a few tears shed in this house. That first episode was just brutal. I highly encourage you to watch, though. It is very powerful. On behalf of the entire team, I want to say with the 20th anniversary of the attacks this weekend, take a moment to think where we are now. And for that one week in 2001, we were one nation. Thank a firefighter. Thank a police officer. And thank the troops. Maybe one day we can get back to being just that. United. No star. God bless. And I will see you soon. Planet Earth. This has been a recording of the Derek Duval Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvalShow.com, for the latest news on downloads and to explore past episodes. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Derek Duval Show.